Tank from New Jersey. It's the SNL Nerds, the show with two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. And I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. John Trumbull, how are you doing this lovely Saturday or Sunday? Sunny Monday. summer afternoon. I don't know where I am. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm aware of what day it is, which puts me one up on you, apparently. So yes. that's good. <laughs> All right, braggart. <laughs> <laughs> So if you're hearing a little uh, extra laughter in the background, that's because we have a special guest in the virtual studio uh, with us today, uh, my friend uh, Rini Naden, uh, who has a blog called The Fangirl Dilemma, The Fangirl's Dilemma, I should say. And you can you can find her on Twitter at Fangirl Dilemma. And she is, conveniently enough for this week, a huge Aaron Sorkin fan, because uh, this week we're doing... Uh, Aaron Sorkin's show, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. So, welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here to talk about Aaron Sorkin in general, and in specifically Studio 60, which is, look, uh, in a later career of weird, weird projects that the man has done, um, easily one of the weirdest. I think being the Ricardos might be a little weirder, but uh, yeah. It, yeah. it's up there. <laughs> and, uh, so. Like a few uh, months back now, we covered the 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 documentary that Amy Poehler did about uh, Lucille Ball and Ricky right. Ra- or Ricky Ricardo um, <laughs> about Lucille oh. Ball and Desi Arnaz called Lucy and Desi, and I talked a little about how horrible the, the Aaron. Oh Sorkin- God, it's yeah, it's not good. Um, yeah. and it uh, you know, and that Amy Poehler documentary is phenomenal. Um, it's and wonderful. it just it's kind wonderful. of shines even more light on how not good yeah. like after I watched that I was like I think I want to like pursue legal measures to prevent Aaron Sorkin from ever writing about television comedy ever again he really needs to stop thinking he understands it um, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. can get into more of that later um, we'll and this that. is as someone who I I love him and I you know I I um the West Wing is probably my favorite television show ever, and I really love television. Um, right. And, you know, like, I, I love The American President and A Few Good Men, and I defend The Newsroom, which is crazy. Um, but, uh, and it just, like, so I was like, okay, no, I'm ready to, like, think this is at least okay. And I was like, no, he needs to stop thinking he knows anything about comedy and leave it alone yeah. <laughs> yeah and like uh and but i'm, I'm also with you uh because like i'm actually a, a big aaron sorkin fan myself i was a fan of the show that not a lot of, i think i still think needs to get more love a uh, sports night sports night's is, great sports, sports night's great how i basically became an aaron sorkin fan i'd seen a few good men uh back when it was in theaters uh but sports night is really what was the start of my aaron sorkin fandom and i I actually even started on the West Wing kind of late because I I sort of resented the West Wing for a little while because it was the high rated show and right. it was part of the reason that Sports Night didn't continue when it was canceled after two seasons. Yeah, uh, you just- and Sorkin's good friend Joshua Molina have that in common. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he also resented the West Wing for basically ending Sports Night. For- <laughs> yeah. And it seems like there's also no love lost between. Uh, Josh Charles and, and Aaron Sorkin. Oh, Josh Charles apparently did not care for that experience. <laughs> yeah, which, is, which is weird because he's so damn good on that show. He is um, great on that show. He's, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, but I mean, Sorkin's a fantastic writer. I mean, like you said, like A Few Good Men is fantastic. The Social Network is a fantastic movie. So he can, yeah, yeah, he, he's a fantastic writer. But yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, we'll get into it. But yeah, with with Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip, it it whenever he writes about like comedy, it um doesn't quite translate. No, like because he can't. Um, it's so important to him that what he's saying is important. <laughs> um, and there's just sketch comedy as much as i love it is not that important and that's kind of how 30 rock ate studio 60's lunch was by being yeah. silly and showing that this is silly yeah, yeah. i mean he's, he basically is kind of like a guy who's very good at writing dialogue and very good at writing sort of big grandiose type of uh you know dialogue but when it comes to writing jokes it's not yeah. He, that's not he, a strong suit. Yeah, I mean, he's not, he's not like, he's not a sketch comedy writer, first of all. He's, no. I mean, he's, he's witty. He has funny moments. Yeah. He can do little, like little witticisms and he'll, he'll do the occasional bit of slapstick on his show, but he's not, yeah, he's not a joke writer. He's not a rat, rat, tat, tat, tat type of. No, he's not. And it, like, so much of the good comedy from, from Sports Night and certainly from The West Wing, which I actually think is hilarious um, yeah. a lot of the time, really comes out of the character dynamics. And this is a show that is so, he's grinding so many axes that none of the characters mm. get to like each other or have affection for each other. And um, it, it strangely becomes the the Aaron Sorkin, everyone who's wronged me show. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how it gets there. Um, there's a reason why some of the best moments are between Bradley Whitford and Matt Perry is because like that's clearly supposed to be him and his um his producing partner Thomas Schlamy who yeah. you know directed the pilot of this and directed a lot of the West Wing um and so like yes those are two people who like love each other and can like razz each other and it and it's yes. great um well, he's he's wonderful at writing like close male friendships heterosexual he really is it's something that's he's very funny. very good at that was what was so wonderful about Sports Night. That was what drew me into Sports Night was the relationship between Dan and Casey. And I absolutely agree. The other thing that's missing from this show, which rewatching it, and it's another thing that uh, like I love about his other shows, is mm -hmm. um, there's no uh, paternal, like warm paternal presence above everybody. Um, yeah. Which... Sports Night has Robert Guillaume doing that, and The West Wing has both uh, Martin Sheen and John Spencer doing that. And, uh, you know, again, it's part of why I uh, defend the newsroom. You have Sam Waterston do playing that role. Right. And, like, in this, you have Ed Asner around, but he's not really in it much. And it's Ed like. Ed just talking about Macau. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, this is so disconnected from what's going on. As, and as the show goes on, you, it's just, it has like, Macau, Macau, Macau. And then, and then so, everyone's talking about Anita Pallenberg uh, for some reason. Oh my um, and they just keep saying her full name, and it's kind of hilarious. And, yeah. and as the show, I mean, nominally, the show is about making an a Saturday Night Live type comedy variety show but it becomes less and less about that as the show goes on and it just gets more and more insane yes <laughs> on almost a week-to-week -week basis which is yes. which is both 
just so weird and and strangely wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> like, how far it's a off fever dream of a show? It's, yeah. Right. Uh, well, before we get into the Studio Sixty, um, yeah. Like, uh, well, like we asked all our guests on this podcast. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, are you? Uh, we always ask all our guests about their uh, SNL origin story. Like, are you a big fan of SNL? You are, are you an SNL nerd? Are you a casual fan? You have a favorite era cast members? Tell <laughs> us uh, your origin. Story. I um, certainly consider myself an SNL fan. I would say now I'm more of a casual fan. Um, but I grew up loving SNL. My um, it's something that I often try to explain to people. My parents, who I'm incredibly and dysfunctionally close to are, um, uh, graduated from college in the mid seventies. So they were like broke just out of college and freshly married when the original cast aired. So it was watching SNL was something they could do on Saturday nights without spending money. So they were always very into the sort of original, you know, that original run. Um, and then I remember watching the reruns in the afternoon on comedy central, like starting from when I was in, maybe fourth or fifth grade. So I got very into the sort of uh, the early nineties to mid nineties run. So like Phil right. Hartman and Adam Sandler and, you know, when Kevin Nealon was behind the update guest desk, I guess is the best way to describe the, the time period. That's probably my favorite. <laughs> um, and then I started watching the show live pretty much every week from when I was in like seventh or eighth grade. Um, I definitely remember having a very, very, very large crush on Jimmy Fallon, <laughs> which is embarrassing to admit now, but I defend that at the time he was adorable and I was a teenage girl. So <laughs> No, I remember like when Jimmy Fallon came on the scene, he was like the heartthrob, like the teen heartthrob. He was like, really so many cute. Girls, so many girls like had like, oh, he's so dreamy. Like, I, I remember um, that. And then I guess in college, I, I fell off watching regularly, but... Um, you know, DVR started being a thing, so I would DVR it and, you know, watch sketches here and there. Um, yeah. Now I wait until Tuesday and um, I listen to your show and mm -hmm. read um, a couple of recaps and kind of decide what sketches are worth my time. Um, unless there's a, a host or a musical guest that I've, I'm really excited about. So, like, I'll always watch the Mulaney episode because it's yeah. always really good. <laughs> Good call. Good call. Oh, you know, and I I should mention that uh, Rini is also the I'll just say official Taylor <laughs> of this podcast is it's uh, true. Yeah, Rini is my friend who I went to, and I'm just like, okay, explain to me all about the the Taylor's version stuff that's going on because I <laughs> want to make true. sure I'm understanding this properly, and I'm not getting I'm not making hideously stupid mistakes when I'm talking about this on the show. Okay, so, so you, you talked to Rini about when uh, Taylor did that 10-minute all-too-well yes. uh, live performance and about the Jake Gyllenhaal and the scarf and all that jazz? Yes. That's, I got the I'm, basis I'm, of it from her, yes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. that's what I'm... I'm good for that. <laughs> I, uh, I um, Yes, I am a big Taylor Swift fan. I don't identify with the Swifty community because they're all a little too intense for me. But um, mm -hmm. I do love her music and have loved her music since I was, you know, 17. So it's, um, I know a lot just based on osmosis and also watching way too much E! News. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds good. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, 
so yeah, this this show, this Studio Sixty, there was a lot of anticipation about this show because it was mm. it's Aaron Sorkin. He's he's just coming off the West Wing. I think the West Wing was still on the air without Sorkin by this point. No, it couldn't have been because Bradley. No, it had just ended. Um, it had just ended. It was Bradley the year. Was it was the season after the West Wing ended. Um, right. But Sorkin had been away, had left it two seasons before. Right. Um, vaguely acrimoniously, like it was. I don't. I, I'm was, trying to remember exactly how it happened. He, he wasn't bender. Yeah, he went on a bender. They decided it wasn't worth renewing his contract. Right. So he wrote an absurd cliffhanger that yeah, where they the wound up having to spend a good half of the first of uh, season five trying to make the show be something it isn't to resolve. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it ended with the president's daughter getting kidnapped and the president having to, you know, step down temporarily, but there wasn't a vice president at the time because yeah. I, I'm not sure why. So, I don't no, remember... Speaker of the House. Uh, no, the, the vice president had just resigned. Yes. For, and they had it. And it was so Tim Matheson as the first vice president had just resigned and they hadn't brought in Gary Cole as the second vice president. Yeah. Right. Um, and, um, yeah. And so, and so John Goodman was the speaker of the House, but he was a Republican. It was this whole thing. Yeah. Um, and they had to. And basically the show had to become 24 for four episodes to. Ooh resolve it and it is not a show that's equipped for that because it's the west wing it's a show about smart people making you know speeches about american idealism it's not about (laughs) Uh, and i've heard that interpreted as like it's it's sorkin doing a like f you guys i quit as he's on his way out the door sorkin in interviews i've seen he's kind of positioned it as well, I'm giving the next team like somewhere to start. Yes, that's how he's framed it later. Which is a much more charitable interpretation. And I can yeah. see it either way. And I don't know which is the, the truth. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Right. Anyway. Well, and the other thing is the person who was taking over was John Wells, who had, you know, made ER, which is another show that I absolutely love, but is much soapier and action packed and much and relies much more on those kinds of you know, twists and turns. So there's some logic to making that decision. The problem is it's just not the West Wing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And honestly, I haven't I haven't watched too much of the West Wing after Sorkin left. I I mean I'm I want like I want the Sorkin West Wing. I'm not too yeah. interested in the this stuff after. I I watched yeah. like the odd episode after that, but never it, it settles into itself. I actually like season six a lot. Season six is about the uh the campaign for who's going to be president after Bartlett. Um, and it's Jimmy Smith and Alan Alda. And it's, you know, like that it's, it's, it's cool. It's a very different show, but it's, it's its own fun thing. Um, anyway, but yeah, so then after that all wrapped up, uh, he and Thomas Schlamme were developing studio 60 on the sunset strip (laughs) about SNL, but it's not SNL and SNL exists in this world. That's very confusing. (laughs) Okay, yeah. yeah. See, that's that's the weird thing. Like in the pilot, the the pilot basically presents this as a fictional version of SNL, and that's yes. great. And then in the second episode, early in the second episode, there's a re- there are references to SNL that start sneaking into the show. Yeah, then, it's weird. Wait, what? So you're a second rate SNL in the universe of this show? Yeah, because... they mentioned Lauren Michaels. Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so we watched we watched six episodes uh, of the er- the early episodes of this show for the podcast. We were like, we're going to concentrate on these six episodes because it's a lot to do a twenty two episode season. Yes, absolutely. Inside of a week for a podcast, and <laughs> that is more Sorkin than one person should take in in a week's time. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So it, the. Uh, but yeah, so the show uh, it aired. It started in um, September eighteenth, two thousand six, and, and it only aired for one season. Ended June twenty eighth, two thousand and seven. And I do remember, like when this show came out, like NBC was promoting it heavy. Like I remember seeing yeah. billboards and posters and commercials for it everywhere. Everybody was like, "Oh, this is this is we got Sorkin back. This is the next new Sorkin thing. Come and watch it." And so it's so weird for it to go to that, to it yeah. being canceled after one season, to like now where people don't even remember it was on. Like you can't even find this streaming really anywhere. It's no, even pe- I, it's, it's even on Peacock. When, so we, when we decided to do this episode, I was like, oh, it'll be easy to watch. It'll be like on Peacock or something. I remember like months back, there was somebody who'd uploaded all the episodes on YouTube. Um and I was like, oh, yeah, so it'll be super easy to watch this. Or if nothing else, I can get the set from the library. No, none of those things are happening. I had to buy <laughs> this on Amazon Prime. I now own Studio 60. <laughs> As do I. And I didn't before because uh, you had asked yeah. me if I had the DVDs. And I was like, I thought I did, but I don't. Which yeah. leads me to believe it was my college roommate. Hi, Jen, if you're listening. Um, who had them? Because <laughs> this was definitely a... Uh, I was a freshman in college when it came out, which that also speaks to how highly it was promoted. I was a freshman yeah. in college. There were things I should have been doing besides watching this show. <laughs> <laughs> and no, my friends and I all got together every Thursday night at 10 and watched this show. <laughs> I mean, this this was the show that was like the sort of expected to be the big hit. It was going to be the next prestige drama. And yeah. You know, so NBC was like obviously putting all their money into it, and it had all these big names in it. We got Matthew Perry coming off of Friends. We got Bradley Whitford coming off of West Wing. We've got Amanda Peet. We've got uh, Sarah Paulson. We've got D.L. Hughley. We've got Nate Cordry from The Daily Show. Um, Lucy Davis from The Office comes in there uh, about halfway through. Stephen Weber. We got Stephen Weber. Stephen Weber. She'll guest star Ed Asner. <laughs> Ed Asner is in the first episode and several episodes thereafter. Um, So big deal, big time TV stuff, man. Yeah, it um, and it really just. I don't know. Apparently, the I mean, you know, the the pilot um, is a very good pilot. Like there's just it's beautifully written, incredibly shot. They get under pressure to end it, which I'm like, that's expensive, man, to get clean and Bowie. And (laughs) they use it well. They don't, I mean, and they do use it well. It has become a bit of a cliche to use, but they use it well. Um, We've, yeah. So even at the beginning of the pilot, it kind of points out some of the problems to come. Like, because, okay, the tagline of the fictional show is, Live from Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. It's Friday night in Hollywood. It's so and clunky. It's way too clunky and wordy. I mean, live from New York on Saturday night, that's boom. It's catchy. Yeah. And 
I mean, even even our equivalent, like tape from New Jersey, it's the SNL nerds. Ha ha. That's I mean, that's still like relatively punchy. But this is so wordy and so clunky. Live from Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. It's Friday night in Hollywood. It's like that should be half as long. Well, and you even think about the fact that the man created an incredible, like, quick, snappy, immediately identifiable catchphrase on his last show what's next is perfect (laughs) and it's like no i guess you only do that once (laughs) like (laughs) yeah and okay and and in the world of studio 60 studio 60 has been around for 20 years and it is you know the big thing it's on friday nights instead of saturday nights it's Um, in la instead of new york what's that darren it's in la instead of new york it's in la instead of new york they start their work week on Mondays, even though the show is on Friday, which gives them only like four or five days to put the show together, which uh, there's seem- a giant countdown clock, John, telling them how no. long they have until the show. No, that's true. <laughs> that <is> true. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it opens up. We're moments away from the show starting where it's the host is Felicity Huffman and the, the musical guest is Three Six Mafia because it's right after it's 2005. Three Six Mafia just won the Oscar for. I forget what they even won the Oscar for. Um, it was for It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp from Hustle and Flow. Okay, there we go. It's the first rap song to ever, no, first rap song to ever be performed on the Oscars, the second to ever win because Eminem didn't perform Lose Yourself. The year that he won. Gotcha. Okay. Weird Oscar trivia that I just have in my brain. So, and, and we, have, we have Judd Hirsch as Wes Mandel, who's this show's equivalent of Lauren Michaels. He's the creator and executive producer of the show. And he's... He's like very upset about something that the sketch has just been cut that he really wants to put on. And again, you'd think this decision would have been made hours before, but no, apparently they're deciding this seconds before they go on air. (laughs) So, so he comes out and he does like his little Howard Beale network speech. And he's like, this isn't going to be a very good show and you should change the channel. And then he goes off on this big rant about how TV is horrible. Yeah. I like there was one part where he, like you say, he talked about how, you know, TV's horrible these days. I like the one part that like I really stuck out where he's talking about, yeah, we have shows now where people eat worms for money and yeah. like people are trying, you know, our contestants are trying to be like Donald Trump. And yeah. like that that hits different nowadays. And like I thought about it and I was like, both the shows he references, those aren't both of those on NBC? Yeah. They are Factor? both on NBC. And it's also amazing that Fear Factor was hosted by Joe Rogan. Like you think about <laughs> How far we've come since 2006. It's like, yeah, we're referencing Joe Rogan and Donald Trump just as like TV personalities. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Just casually. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah. And it's weird to think, yeah, those are both NBC shows, but in in the world of this show, they're not on NBC. They're on NBS, the fictional. Yes. The same name of the fictional network from the movie network. Yes. They, I just watched Network this week because the yeah. thing I'm doing on my blog right now, I'm watching, I'm trying to watch 104 new movies over the course of the year or old movies that are new to me. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, well, watch Network because they talk about Network a lot on Studio 60. There's very little on this show that is anything like that movie. No, no I mean, <laughs> Network is is very satir- satirical. but Yeah, I mean, and pointed and not, and and wacky and like strange and all kinds of things that are, are not this show at all. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And, and so, like, so right after we have this huge on-air meltdown, then we cut to uh, Amanda Pete as the new president of NBS, uh, Jordan McDear. And she, there's, she's at this nice dinner party that's because she's just become the new president. They're, they're all there welcoming her. And, and Ed Asner is the head of the corporation that owns the network. Um, he might be, by the way, the first person ever on a Sorkin show who actually refers to note cards when he's spouting off statistics. Yes. And he's like giving Jordan's resume. And I was like, oh, that's something I've never seen on a Sorkin show. Because like on a, in Sorkin world, everyone just knows these statistics off the tops of their heads. And I've, <laughs> I've always wanted to see somebody on a Sorkin show who just like wants to make those same points, but doesn't have all the memory for numbers. And is just like, oh yeah, well, like 73% of, uh, um, or, and gets just very flustered. I think that yes, would be I agree. <laughs> I think that would be beyond his capacity to uh, imagine, though. Because yeah, I don't if think you're doing anything at the level of someone in a Sorkin show, you're the best at it and one yeah. of the greatest people to ever live. So, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, as, as far as Amanda Pete, I think she's good on the show. She's very but, good. Like yeah, yeah. One of the I, people I like the most on the show. Yes, I yeah. agree. She's really fun. And really sort of, I think she gets that, like, Jordan's not a normal functioning human and really no. plays with that and has a, has a good time with it in a way right. that I think I other mean, people would either go too far or, like, play her as, like, a real stick in the mud. Like, and mm-hmm. she's just, like, no, she's, like, kind of wacky and offbeat. But you also can see why she has her job and why she's good at what she does. Yeah, because I know that's a thing with a lot of people say about Aaron Sorkin, where he doesn't write women very well. Like he'll write. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't. I don't. I want to get your, maybe get your thoughts. No, on it, like, I actually, um, I I get really annoyed about that because mm-hmm. I think uh, Aaron Sorkin doesn't write people. Like he doesn't. Like people are like <laughs> he's never written a relatable woman. I was like he's never written a relatable man either. Like the, these are these are strange abstract concepts that have manifested on the page and then by, you know, actors who are really, really good at doing this specific thing. I also think um, in particular, we talked about sports, sport night and sports night and the West wing. And even in this pilot, you have Felicity Huffman who like Dana on sports night is incredible. And then uh, Allison Janney playing CJ on the West wing is incredible. Like he created these incredible female characters. And then also another latter day, excuse me, Sorkin project that I stand up for is Molly's Game with Jessica Chastain, which is, you know, a weird and wonderful little movie that she's great in and is written wonderfully in. And it just like, so it's, I was like, no, you, you saying you think he can't write women means that you don't like Sorkin and that's fine, but that's a different argument. (laughs) Look, he writes that gender very well when the story calls right? for it. Calls for it. God, I love that joke. Walk with me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Sorkin was a good enough sport to do that cameo on Thirty Rock years after the fact, and and yeah. they even stuck in that joke where where he's like, you know, you know my work, a few good men, uh, uh, West Wing, and then uh, Tina Fey <laughs> says Studio Sixteen goes shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> Brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, yeah. Very nice. But, okay. So, so Jordan McDear, she suggests, you know, the, the, 
Studio 60 is in crisis. So she says, here's what we need to do. We need to get on top of the story. We need to rehire Matt Albee and Danny Tripp, who are the characters played by Matthew Perry and Bradley Whitford. And we need to hire them back because they used to be with the show four years ago. And we're, we're hiring them again to take over the show from their mentor, Wes, who's we've now fired. <laughs> right. Um, and then yeah. this all happen, ha- happens in over the course of one night, uh, which is, yeah, it's a TV convention, but it, but it works for the story, I think. I yeah, agree. I, um, I like the point that Jordan makes that um, they want to do it as quickly as possible so that they can control the story is right. like, that feels very true. Like, yeah. Yeah, it does. And, um, oh, by the way, we also have Steven Weber in the mix as the network guy, Jack Rudolph. Yeah, he's the chairman of the network. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Steven Weber is freaking awesome in this. Yes, he's very good. Yeah, he's he's just, he, he's having a ball in this role. And he, <laughs> I mean, he's he's sort of like the da- the Jack Donaghy of this yes. show. If you're a yeah, I'd agree. I and, um, he's also named Jack, actually. He's also oh. named Jack. <laughs> and apparently, there was a real network person named Jack. And oh, that makes sense. The, and the, so the Jordan McGee character from... is partially based on Jamie Tarsus, who was okay. one of the network people that Sorkin had a friendship with. Um, and. So the, then in the pilot, we, we cut to Matt Albee and Danny Tripp there at like this Writers Guild Award thing. And we find out very quickly Matt Albee's on lots of painkillers because he just had back surgery and he's on lots of drugs. So you immediately know he's the Aaron Sorkin stand in. Right. <laughs> Damn. And, and also he's he's the genius writer that everyone loves unconditionally. Right. Yes, very much <laughs> and he's so charming and offsetting and oh my gosh isn't he just the best and yeah 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 i will say though like the one of the things i really like about i do like about this show is the chemistry between uh matt and danny you know uh, yeah bradley whitford and matthew perry is really good like i really Perfect. buy them as like you know old friends who are in the trenches together and like the back and forth they have and the chemistry they have i think is is really good like every time it's just them talking i'm like i'm interested yeah, yeah, they they get into a groove together, and they do have a chemistry together, and, and you really believe that they are friends of many years. I agree. And, I also like. I am again as a big Sorkin fan. I think that there are very few actors that do his work as much justice as Bradley Whitford does. He's just mm-hmm. such a good match for the tone and the the kind of weird balancing act you have to do to to you know perform it well and it just you know just watching him do those speeches and even just react to other people doing them is just such a joy and it you know it i wish he would do more of aaron's stuff yeah. but he hasn't been in anything since this and i want <laughs> it's kind of a bummer why isn't he in the social network there are so many weird white men in suits in that movie he should be one of them <laughs> good point <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We, we are overdue for another Bradley Whitford, Aaron Sorkin collaboration, definitely. And I, hell, I'd like to see Matthew Perry do something else with him. 
I agree. Um, Matthew Perry's guest spot on, uh, or like guest run on West Wing is great. Yeah. You know, he's a Republican lawyer who they have a friendly adversarial relationship with. There were a couple of those, but he was one of them. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and and you can tell, like, he really wanted to stretch his wings and do something different after Friends. I mean, every... Uh, I think all and, six of them wanted that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> true, true. And some have been more successful at that than others. But Yes, it's true. Um, so, and then we also meet the three big stars of the sketch show Studio 60, which are Harriet Hayes, played by Sarah Paulson, uh, Simon Stiles, played by D.L. Hughley, and uh, Tom Jeter, played by Nate Cordry. And they are like the three big stars of this show. There are other people in the cast, but they're the three that really matter. Right. So. We're, we're with them the most. Like uh, <clears throat> Harriet Hayes or Harriet, everybody calls her, is like, yeah. like you know, the big female star. Uh, she's also like a, you know, right wing conservative and she's very religious and very Christian, which they, mm-hmm. uh, they, they make a lot out of throughout the show that, you know, because she... Um, well, we'll talk about it maybe in a later episode where she makes a comment about what the Bible says about gay marriage and right. that offends a lot of her gay, um, you know, her gay you know, followers and whatnot. I do, I do think that's interesting how on the show they do bring sort of the um, uh, the thing of where they sort of try to include like the the right wing view of things and like how you know maybe you know Hollywood and the left kind of look down on the flyover states and all those you know the the, the you know, red state hicks and whatnot. They, they they do mention that quite a bit throughout the show, which I think is an interesting little thing they do. And uh, the character of Harriet Hayes, uh, based on uh, Kristen Chenoweth, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes. An Kristen ex-girlfriend Ch- of Aaron Sorkin's. Yes. Kristen Chenoweth is a Broadway legend. She has two Tony Awards, I believe, at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, multiple Emmys for her work on uh, Pushing Daisies and her guest work on a few other shows. Um, She's brilliantly funny, um, yeah. and in, and in also an incredible, um, fully trained operatic soprano. She has she actually has a master's degree in opera. Um, she's wow. unreal. I didn't if you thing you could do, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in in operatic performance, she has a master's degree. She um, and she, uh, I met her briefly at a stage door after seeing Wicked when I was sixteen, mm-hmm. and she was signed my playbill and was very nice to me while I, you know, cried. Um, and she, yeah, if, if you ever have the opportunity to see her perform live, it is just an absolutely transcendent experience. I mean, I, I, um, I've been trying to see her in concert for the past few years since she started Mm -hmm. touring again and haven't gotten a chance to do that. But I did, I saw her in Wicked when I was a teenager and she just is unreal. And this is what she has to say about, uh, Harriet Hayes. (laughs) Hang on in her book. Came equipped. She's got Kristen Chenoweth's autobiography, and she, she talks about this. Now, I understand, like Sorkin, he he asked permission to base this character on her, and she was. They were exes at this point, right? Yes, they uh, were together while he was while they were developing the show, and had broken up uh-huh. uh, by the time it was made and aired, uh-huh. and then they got back together at some point after for a brief time. They were on again and off again for a while. A big chunk of her book is about that. 
Mm, but okay. hang on, let me find the exact quote I was yeah. looking for here. Okay. Didn't yeah, he but... have audition for the role? Uh, he did. Uh, he. <laughs> uh, that was actually when she said no. I had misremembered that. Uh, they asked her to audition for it, and she said, I will not audition to play myself. And they said, okay. And then I went in a different yeah. direction. <laughs> yeah, because, um, I mean, I mean, if you watch the show, that is, like, I don't know, there was a, there was especially one scene where, uh, because on the show, Harriet Hayes is Matt Albee's ex-girlfriend used to go out. And right. uh, it is an interesting dynamic where uh, Harriet Hayes is this, you know, woman, devout Christian from the South. Uh, Matt Albee is this... Um, you know, liberal Jewish guy from, I guess he's from the North. I never really say, but like yeah. I, there was one scene where they were having like a serious conversation about, you know, gay marriage and how Matt kind of thinks Harriet is a homophobe because of what she said about, you know, marriage, mm-hmm. gay marriage in the Bible. And I was watching that. I was like, Oh, this is definitely a conversation Aaron Sorkin had with Christian Chenoweth when they were going out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, and they, they say in the pilot, like their big, fight before their breakup was that she went on the 700 club to promote an album and he objected to that strenuously because pat robertson and apparently yeah this was a real life fight that the two of them had so um so okay so here's the paragraph from her book i was thinking of like harriet i'm comfortable saying i don't know in fact i'm i'm keeping a list of questions for god when i meet him a list that gained a few inches after i was on the 700 club I don't recall being pinned with a junior deputy Jesus badge that authorizes me to police what others do in this life or the next. Harriet is likewise unwilling to judge. But unlike Harriet, I'm not on the fence about certain old school fundamentalist beliefs. I do not believe that Jews automatically go to hell or that being gay is a sin. I'm not a strict constructionist where the Bible is concerned. It's like my grandma used to say, I eat the fish without choking on the bones. Uh, Harriet is far more serious than I am. More of an intellectual, less of a happy-go-plucky, hey, darling, power shopper. So that's, yeah, her mm. kind of take on that. And but, you know what? That That's the weird thing about Harriet on the show is there's so much talk about, like, how hilarious she is and how talented she is and how wonderfully sexy she is and stuff. And I'm just like, I'm not quite seeing most of those things <laughs> with Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson's a great actress, but I don't think she's particularly funny. And yeah. I don't think... I don't think she and Matthew Perry have a great deal of romantic chemistry together, which yes. I think is like, okay. In one of these episodes, uh, Lauren Graham from uh, Gilmore Girls and, mm-hmm. and Parenthood and tons of other stuff, she comes on briefly and she and Matthew Perry, who are like old friends in real life, they have way more chemistry <laughs> together in like 90 seconds. <laughs> Absolutely. And he has with Sarah Paulson for like the entire 22 episode run of this show. It is nuts. It's really, really funny. And it like, it's one of those things that, um, yeah, it uh, just doesn't make any sense with the, uh, like, and it it makes sense if it's Kristen Chenoweth or Kristen Chenoweth younger replacement on Broadway, Megan Hilty, who John and I both have a huge crush on. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like Sarah Paulson is, I agree. Great. And she's been really funny and stuff. I mean, down with love is a movie. I love, she's hilarious in that movie, Hmm. but it's like, she's not that girl to quote wicked. (laughs) Well, I mean, according to IMDB, uh, it says Harriet's inability to tell a joke is based on Sarah Paulson's own inability to do so. 
Aaron Sorkin <laughs> heard that she had that problem and thought it was hilarious, so he wrote it into the show. Yeah. I always felt like that was uh, a little bit of self-awareness on his own part, but I guess I was wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if we should give Aaron Sorkin that much credit for that much self-awareness. <laughs> I was I was like, I'm giving you a smidge of credit for self-awareness here, Aaron. It's like, no, no. <laughs> no, no. So, okay. So at the end of the episode, they, they work it out and we... They they decide to take over the show basically because Danny Tripp, Bradley Whitford's character, tested positive for cocaine uh, doing the insurance physical for their new movie because they've, they've gotten huge movie careers since they left Studio 60. Four and years ago. Four years ago. And he had... <laughs> and he had like a relapse with cocaine that is like never touched on again. No. They, oh, I don't know if you've gotten there yet. When yeah, uh, we learn that Matt is have is having a pill problem, they bring it up again. In the okay, yeah, in the later because he yells, uh, Whitford gets a nice big Sorkin speech where he gets to say, "I'm a drug addict and I have to be one for the rest of my life, and I'm not going to let that happen to you," <laughs> and, um, or something. It's like yeah. it's in that vein. <laughs> but, and. In the in the second episode, I, I think it was we find out that no no it's a, the third episode the focus group we find out that Jordan McDear had a DUI in her past so now three of our leads have substance abuse problems <laughs> yeah what's up with that I mean right what you know I guess <laughs> it's so weird it's like you really could have just done this with one character Aaron but yeah <laughs> okay I mean it is LA maybe everybody has a substance abuse problem out there well, I guess yeah. yeah yeah I mean there is a moment in the pilot that I really like when uh uh Jack Rudolph uh Stephen Weber's character is the network guy he's he's charging in uh and he's trying to find a tape of what Wes Mandel said on the air and they go into three six mafias uh dressing room and there's there's just this haze of pot smoke you don't you don't see anybody smoking pot but obviously they were they were getting toasty (laughs) (laughs) toasty so uh yeah Yeah. (laughs) oh and also um uh aaron sorkin really doesn't like christians particularly fundamentalist christians because he just keeps coming back to that and apparently half of Studio 60, the show, is anti-Christian sketches. Oh, my God. It's which like, seems a very limited focus for a comedy show. But. Well, it seems like part of the philosophy he's trying to give Matt Albee is that like he doesn't like doing humor about the Bush administration because it feels lazy, mm-hmm. which, again, feels very prescient given what, uh, you know, 10 years from then, SNL is going to be doing with Trump, but yeah. it, like, um, absolutely, and like the sort of just falling back on it because it's easy. But it's also like I'm like I don't know, man. It was it, I remember 2006, and there was a lot of stuff that was happening that was really funny that wasn't just about you know the religious right and its continued rise to power that continues to this day. But we, yeah. you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like a part of the controversy of Matt and Danny taking over the show is like Matt wrote this sketch 
uh, called Crazy Christians that oh, right. didn't get on the air back then. And so Jordan says, like, do that in your first show back. Right. And and that's weird because it's like, okay, it's a, a four-year-old sketch. And yeah, okay, sometimes old stuff does get resurrected on Saturday Night Live, like Diner Lobster when John Mulaney came back to host for the first right. time. But they could do that because it wasn't a topical sketch. Like what was, they, they never really detail what is in crazy Christians. I don't think it's, it's just called crazy Christians. Yeah. It's something in the flashback to Harriet's first day. Yeah. And Matt brings it up like his idea for it. It's something about like literally believing in angels and like how he like mm-hmm. thinks that's hilarious. <laughs> and I'm like, as you know, I'm religious, I'm Catholic. It's, um, yeah. and I'm just like, that's like among the least crazy things. It's such a basic belief. Like it's yeah. not that interesting. <laughs> it, it feels like Aaron Sorkin just went down a Wikipedia rabbit hole yeah. and looked up a few things. And he was just like, Oh, ho, ho, isn't this funny? Uh, yeah. <laughs> because i I remember i remember that at the time being like dude you can make fun of us for a lot of stuff that's a lot weirder like like, oh angels are real and i'm like i mean yeah but like also if you know anything about theology like angels are meant to be a literal manifestation of like god's love and power like they're supposed to be kind of like somewhere between real and not real that's the point of them like um, I don't know. It's just. I don't care. You're crazy. I know. I'm insane. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I guess that's like one of my issues, or probably the biggest issue with the show I have is where, like, when it comes to the comedy aspect of it, it's not that strong. And it does feel maybe a little dated. Like, maybe it felt it would, like, to attack, you know, the Christians and and the right, like, uh, you know, in the the early aughts, maybe. It's, it wasn't as dangerous as it was, like, to attack them maybe in the 70s or something like that. Right. It's, it's like, something about the humor feels uh, dated, especially with the um, the cold open episode where they yeah. where they come up with that cold open and sing this big song about all the issues that they, they've been having with the show. And, like, yeah. I mean, we've, I mean, we've, I mean, SNL has done that where they have, like, big singing song oh opens and i don't know they never yeah but okay i mean this the cold (laughs) open episode this this is one of the high points of insanity on the show because for for most of the episode matt albee our aaron sorkin equivalent is he's like well what do we do for the cold open of the show because we have to come back and we have to like you know talk about we have to address all this stuff that happened with the show all the and we have to promise that we're going to do better than coming coming forward and we have to be contrite and uh, and funny and blah, 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 blah. And it has to be all this stuff. And then they go off on this thing and he says, you know who did the best frat humor of all time? <laughs> Gilbert, Gilbert and Sullivan. Sullivan. And I'm like, really? Aaron Sorkin? I think you're the only person on earth who believes that. I don't think even Gilbert and Sullivan believe that. <laughs> I love Gilbert and Sullivan I because I'm a big old theater dork and it's like but it's like i'm like i actually wrote down in my notes when i was rewatching, and i was like oh yes i'm the weirdo dork who this cold open is for Um, like i was like this works for me but it's absurd that they would think it would work for 
anyone but like me and Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's another thing that they do on the show quite a bit, where like they're, they're constantly referencing like uh, you know television's past and things in the past. Like yeah. Sid, they'll make Abbott and Costello references, Sid Caesar references, like you know, right? All these old shows from the forties. Nate Cordry's character references Rudy Valley. I'm like, who the hell is talking <laughs> about Rudy Valley in the last 50, 60 years? I mean. I, again, watching the show again, I actually, a lot about Nick Cordry's performance really held up for me in a way yeah, that other he's really good. He's really aspects good. of the show didn't. I think he's great on this show. The yeah. part is as bananas as the rest of the show, but like Tom is established as being like kind of manic and strange to begin with. So I think it just mm. works better. <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, okay, so they they put together this big Gilbert and Sullivan number. They're doing I Am the Very Model of a Modern Major General, but they, right. they've rewritten the lyrics to apply to Studio 60. And the weird thing is they're like, we'll be the very model of a modern network TV show. And then the next line is, we hope you don't mind that our producer caught, got caught doing blow. Right. So they're addressing the Danny Tripp thing. They don't address the West Mandel thing at all. They at do all, not. Which you would think more people would know about in the audience. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. And, I mean, that's also, like the fact that they build the whole cold open from that joke that they like kind of make offhand about yeah. how the, that rhymes. I'm like, yes, no, that's kind of funny. But mm-hmm. the rest of this is, you know is being retrofitted weirdly into like one kind of funny joke that DL Hughley makes. So I right. And and they talk about they also talk about how the evangelicals are gunning for them. And I'm like, they're they're not really because you haven't done the crazy Christian sketch yet. You're yeah, supposed to be well they brought it up the at the press conference. And right. I guess apparently there are like there's like a news reporter outside who's like there From are Rapture 30 magazine. to 40 people protesting Studio 60, and I'm like, oh, 30 whole people standing out protesting a TV show. That's worth commenting on at all. No. (laughs) And and there's also, like, and Harriet has a thing, and she's like, you know, I'm a Christian, tried and true, baptized at age 11, so unlike the uh, something gays and Jews, I'm going straight to heaven. Yeah. And, okay, you just know that Aaron Sorkin said she was baptized at age 11 just so that she could he could have a rhyme with heaven oh yes absolutely <laughs> doesn't it make much more sense for her to be baptized at a younger age when when children are normally baptized so, so that's a, that's a thing with the southern baptists though is that you have to uh you can't get baptized until you can like say that you were born again in Christ and, and oh, so it's more like a confirmation type of thing. Yeah, okay. it's much more like confirmation. Yeah. All right. Well, then I take uh, then I'll take back that uh, that criticism because yes. I was not. Reading but it, it it's also the age eleven was definitely chosen to rhyme with heaven. Don't that yeah. for sure. No, <laughs> oh, another weird meta thing is in the second episode. Uh, Jack Rudolph says to Jordan McDear, "You've got spunk. I hate yes! spunk." <laughs> I noted that too. Literally in the last episode. I was like, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's cute. <laughs> it, but it's so weird. It's as weird as the SNL references. Yes, agreed. It but it also just, you know, makes me laugh. Um there's there's more of that later. There's an uh there's an episode 
where Allison Janney hosts the show and it's really right. just her and Timothy Busfield flirting. And I'm like, we all know none of us could get enough of this on the West Wing. We're fine with it, but come on. <laughs> like, oh um, by the way, the, the hosts of the show within a show for this week are Mark Wahlberg and the White Stripes. And they have again, the if it, if you didn't know it was 2006, you do now. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you never see them. I mean, you yeah. see you see Tom Jeter dressed up in a wig uh, yes. to do a white stripes sketch, but the white stripes have to cancel. So, right, right. absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I mean, going off of just unbelievably ridiculous things. I mean, we got to go to the West Coast delay episode. Oh boy! <laughs> I think we. I think it's time. So, yeah, uh, okay. I agree. So, in this episode, like uh, you know, the writers are feeling the pressure from uh, Matt to like produce like uh, some new material, especially for the, uh, the new segment, the new 60, they call it. And yeah. uh, so one of the writers who's, you know, kind of afraid of getting uh, fired comes up with this material about, you know, how, you know, kids today are, you know, kids about kids today and whatnot. And um, so he gets it on the show. They say the joke on uh, air and it does well. And then uh, it turns out, I think somebody finds out that that joke was actually done by a, a comic like i think like an, at an open mic a couple of years ago and they find a clip of it right. on youtube so like it looks like it was plagiarized and when uh danny and uh when danny finds out about it they treat the thing as if it's like 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 a like like the president got shot where they're like oh my oh god, my god. You, get, you, we, <laughs> we gotta lock this down go go find that go go find that comic and apologize and we gotta rewrite this whole thing now like it, I'm like, wow. Well, they... Oddly enough, there is a real life uh, plagiarism instance in the history of the actual SNL. Um, uh, Jay Moore, years ago, he wrote a book about his time on SNL called Gasping for Airtime. And he was only on the show for maybe two years, I think. Right. right. But he, he wrote about how he got so desperate for material on the show, he ended up stealing a stand-up bit from somebody he knew from the stand-up I think, circuit. Uh, I think it's Rick Shapiro, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, I didn't think to pull my copy of the book and it's across the room now. So um, I'm just, we'll just go on my vague memory, but uh, he was caught and he was like basically called into Lauren's office and they showed him the clip and they were like, Hey, was this intentional? And I don't think he admitted it at the time, but like the show had to pay off Rick Shapiro. Right. And uh, th that was pulled from all the reruns. So yeah, they do take that really, really seriously. Um, right. So I, I did actually write down in my notes, I was like, not a comedian. So going to ask the comedians, I know that joke theft is considered like very serious and like uncool. Like I get that, yeah. but it's not like a life and death thing. Like they make it to be here. Yeah, right? I would say, yeah. Like it's. <laughs> no, I mean, joke theft. I, I'm never cool with joke theft. I don't like it at all. Uh, but the way they treat it is like, all right, we're going to reshoot this whole thing. We got to get a new audience. We got a on air apology. We, I was like, wow, this we're, is we're going to come into the West coast delay of the show so that we can do this. And we have to, we have to reference the sports event to prove that we're live. And I was like, and this is explain this the situation and apologize. And then, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I like, I'm not cool with Joe but this seems like a bit much. Like overkill, like maybe I don't know, uh, like release a press release the next day saying like whoopsie. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and it, 
that out of the freaking newscast and put in something from dress. <laughs> You know, like SNL would do. <laughs> well, the other the other thing that I uh, observed was they mention Danny mentions to Simon that they're going to have him start doing the news. So right. was Harriet doing the news by herself before? Because that sounds awful. No, it's very vague. It's very. Vague and are there only six cast members? We only meet six cast members. There are like seven. Okay. So it's more like original cast SNL. Okay. Where they start yeah. out with like seven cast members. But honestly, like four of them are such non-entities. They don't. I know. know. Yeah. By I mean, the way, one well, of the Jeannie's non-entities... around because she one and of... Matt have sex sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but one of the non-entities says Simon Helberg seemed to be yeah. the Big Bang Theory. And apparently at this point, he'd shot the pilot for the Big Bang Theory. But like they delayed it for a year so they could retool it. Okay. Right, because that there's a, a lot of stories about that pilot about how it was much meaner, um, right? And like, and it was, it was, and it like um, Kaylee Cuoco's character was like yeah. an alcoholic, which wound up happening anyway, but was supposed to be in it from the beginning. Um, <laughs> but but I mean, it's weird to think that if this show had gone, Simon Helberg might not have been in the Big Bang Theory, and how different his career might have been. Yes, wow. absolutely. And he, by the way, is is good. I could buy him as a cast member on an SNL-like show because he has good impressions. He does a good Nicolas Cage. He does a t- good Tom Cruise. He does a good Ben Stiller. Yes. Harriet Hayes, by the way, her big impressions are Holly Hunter, Juliet Lewis, and a horrible Nancy Grace impression. It's really <laughs> bad. I actually kind of love the Juliet Lewis thing because it's so weird like, that someone would A, no, do he- it. And then anyone would put that on television. <laughs> it would make sense if they were doing this show in 1993. But in yeah. 2006, was there anyone clamoring for Holly Hunter and Juliet Lewis impressions? I guess those are who Sarah Paulson could do. But yeah. it's, so weird. it's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. And also, also in the West Coast LA, they're like, we have no time for cue cards. So right. here, here are your scripts. And I'm like, what? No time? You what? you were prepping this for like an hour. You don't have yeah. time for two parts. <laughs> it, it's I, so I, funny. I, the, all the panic of it is just so very much like, again, he was coming off of having done the West Wing, where it's like, yes, everything is life and death. You are governing. <laughs> like, uh-huh. um, um, this is a sketch show. Calm down. <laughs> I, get, I get that doing a live sketch show is stressful and nerve-wracking and highly competitive and all that, but I don't think it's to the hyped-up degree that Sorkin does. And so much of the show, it just comes off of like Sorkin's imagined version of what it's like, because apparently when he was putting together the show, he went to Lorne Michaels and said, hey, can I shadow you for a week through a production week of SNL and get a better idea of what it's like? And Lorne Michaels was like, no, we are not going to do that because I am producing 30 Rock, and why would I help you out? Right. <laughs> and it's it it is funny because it's so hard to not draw the 30 rock comparison now because like yeah 30 rocks first season also rocky but yeah it it's so much better than this like, yeah. <laughs> um, like, i mean 30 rock if nothing else it was funny from the start and you have a they also did the very smart thing of 30 rock is they knew that the girly show or TGS 
was not a good sketch show and they could get humor out of that. And even Sorkin did this when he did Sports Night. Sports Night was about like the third highest rated sports show. It wasn't like the number one sports center show. Right. And here here it's in the world of Studio 60. This is the number one premier sketch comedy show, except of course SNL still exists. So somehow that goes out the window. Right. yeah, they talk about how this is like, this is so important. It makes us laugh and it makes us think and it makes us realize what the world is doing wrong. And it's just mm. like. Very true. Like sketch comedy writers, I don't think they think about the import of their work so much. They, they're they just going for the gag. Yeah. You know? And, um, you know, it's the, um, the show doesn't go on because it's perfect. The show goes on because it's 1130 thing. It's like, it's, exactly. there's not enough show business in yeah. this show and yet there's so much of the business side of it and not enough of the show side of it yes absolutely like, was, yeah yeah because there's so much weird corporate intrigue on this show yeah, but there's, like not enough like oh my god we're silly you know like we're yeah. trying to make people laugh yeah, I mean, they're they're like small moments like that. At one point, Matt Perry he walks in on the cast, and they're all practicing spit takes with yes. each other. Yeah, and I'm like, I can believe something like that goes on, especially like at two in the morning, if and especially if people are getting high or whatever. But but yeah, we needed to see more. We need to see more people just being goofy. You yeah, know? yeah. There's too much drama in a show about a comedy show. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I I bring up like even the West Wing was sillier than this. Like, and and that was the choice of the U.S. government. Like, (laughs) there's a whole episode where the president calls the Butterball Hotline to learn how to make a turkey for Thanksgiving, and it's brilliant. Like. <laughs> yeah, or, or the bit in, in the American president where he he's trying to figure out how to send flowers to Sydney uh, Wells for half the movie. Um, yes, and he sends her a ham. That's a really good joke. Like, yeah. There's but, not um, enough of that in this. So Sorkin is funny in his own way, but yeah, not Sketch County funny. And we only see glimpses of the sketches, but what we see is just generally pretty dire. I would say <laughs> the only sketch that looks like fun to me is science science <laughs> and well, i think that, that's because rob reiner's in it <laughs> it's like, seems really overstuffed because it's yes. it's like a game show thing but there are like five people on the game show and i'm like that's way too many unless you're yeah. doing like a family feud parody <laughs> <laughs> right even when snl has like game show parody then they have more than uh, five people in the panel were like this is too many i mean that, that's also my my thing i think i said it before with uh with the studio 60, like what during this, the sketches, all mm-hmm. the dialogue and it seems very wordy. Like, yes. you know, they need more wordy. jokes, more punch, like shorten it up, punchy. I think the people yeah. who wrote on this show on studio 60, like they're all good at writing dialogue. Person, it's all, and yeah. he doesn't let yeah. other people write his shows. He's like okay. Matt Albee that way. <laughs> yeah. See, that's, a, that's the thing. We, we needed like the show needed more joke writers. And, I agree. Uh, and it, instead of people who just write good, it seems like it was all written by people who write good dialogue with occasional funny things, you know, like, sprinkled throughout. In the science science sketch that we see portions of, I mean, and it's it's all these uh, fanatically religious people on a game show and they're confronting them with science that contradicts their beliefs. And 
Here's an actual line from it. It's, you understand that archaeologists are in possession of a three million year old skull found by Johannesburg, which would put your answer off by 2,994,000 years. That's so wordy. Oh. Like, if, you're doing, if you're doing stand-up or if you're doing sketch comedy, you want to eliminate all the unnecessary words. Right. And that sentence should be about half as long. I mean, it's just like, you know, uh, live from uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. It's Friday in Hollywood. It's way too wordy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Sorkin's style, but it's it just doesn't work for <laughs> as believable sketch comedy. No, yeah. absolutely. I, um, as I said about the West Coast Delay, this is an yeah. episode that is just like Aaron Sorkin heroin. If you're a Sorkin fan and like need yeah. a quick 40-minute fix with where you get everything he does, this yeah. is the episode to watch, but that doesn't make it good. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I like the basic plot of the episode. I think yeah. it's entertaining in that regard. I like, I like the tag at the end is like, this is not the night of comedy we planned on doing this evening. I mean, that's, yeah. that's cute in the witty Sorkin way. I and, agree. There's lots of baseball metaphors, which is very Sorkin. They're, yeah. Referencing August Strindberg plays, which is like, I'm like, okay, like 10 people get that. You need to back off. Like yeah. it. <laughs> I read a lot of little think pieces from back in the day and from the years since about like why Studio 60 didn't work. Yeah. Um, and somebody, and I'm forgetting who, suggested like he should have done a show about the production of like The Daily Show. Right. Show. Like a, and I think that would have been much more in his wheelhouse. I agree. And um, it would have really been much current and more topical in, in 2006 than doing an SNL type show, which, you know, SNL wasn't as relevant in 2006. I, I hate to say it, but. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. And uh, it's like also, like you said, like uh, both of you said, like as the, uh, as the uh, series goes on, they get weirder and weirder and kind of further away mm -hmm. from the show. I mean, but sometimes there are episodes where they bring up issues having to do with comedy, like on the, the rap party episode where they have right. that sort of side, uh, the side scenario where Simon wants to have more black writers on. The right. app, like that's interesting. They didn't do nearly enough with Simon over the run of the show, by the way. Like every time there's anything with him, I'm like, he's good. And the tension he has with people is good. Why isn't there more of this? <laughs> like, Hughley is, is good on the show. I think mostly actors are, are killing it, honestly. Yeah. I think the problem, most of the problems with Studio 60 stem from the writing. Um, yes. But even like the dynamics that seem to work, like the, yeah. the tension between Simon and Danny is great and mm -hmm. it's only in that one episode they never do anything with it again and i'm like but this could yeah. like you could have built something up around this if the instincts that you made two great tv shows with before were still with you which yeah. clearly they had fled the coop maybe with the cocaine <laughs> it like hey i'm just you know i'm very glad he's healthy that's not i you know but yeah. It, <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, there should have been like maybe a little more tension on, you know, these new guys coming in. And they hit on it br very briefly in the second episode, The Cold Open, where Simon is kind of challenging Danny a bit. And he's like, well, what did you think of the season premiere this year? And Danny's just kind of like, uh, well, I didn't watch it, but I'm, I'm going to catch up. Yeah. And it's mm. like, really, dude, you didn't catch up on the show a bit over the weekend? <laughs> uh, exactly. 
Um, yeah, we know Matthew Perry was sleeping off for like 28 hours straight, but you weren't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, there's also an, an utterly bizarre subplot in the rap party that we have to hit on where, where Tom Jeter's parents <laughs> come to the theater and they are the most stereotypical Midwest yokels. Right. Oh, it's so condescending. It's Ever so cares. condescending. He, he's like, he's going through the theater and like studio 60, the show is in this great old art deco theater. It's this wonderful, wonderful set. It's huge. And it's, it's probably half the reason the show was canceled because the show was so goddamn expensive between this expansive set and the what i imagine were the huge cast salaries um that apparently was half the reason it was canceled because it was just three million an episode to produce well and you see it slowly start to get more and more set bound as they go along because like the first few episodes they're like out and about the rap parties are like at cool la restaurants which again is much more realistic you know like and then no, <laughs> it's just all on the set all the time. And in the, like, the last few episodes, this is jumping ahead from Darren. I don't think you've seen these episodes, but they're doing flashback episodes to when Matt and Danny were with the show before. And there are constant references to Wes Mandel, Judd Hirsch's character, but they obviously couldn't get Judd Hirsch to return to the show. Yeah. So it's just yeah. like, oh, Wes is sick. <laughs> He's <laughs> not. You just missed him. He walked out the door. And and the fact that the last three episodes are, you know, Amanda Pete actually got pregnant in real life. So they had to, you know, deal with that. Um, So then they had to make Jordan be pregnant. And there's this whole weird subplot with Danny stalking her and then she falls for him. And Um, And that was yucky at the time. And time has not done that subplot any favors. No, it's bad. Um, Back to Tom Jeter's... Yes, Tom Jeter's horrible, horrible parents who... Tom Jeter is, like, leading him through the theater and explaining all the history of the theater, and he's like, oh, and this is is a theater where Abbott and Costello workshopped a little routine called Who's On First? And his parents are literally like, what is that? And he's like, (laughs) who's on first? And they're like, oh, well, we don't watch Comedy Central. And I'm like, no one is this stupid. (laughs) So... at least heard of who's on first if you haven't seen the whole thing if you don't know every single line if you don't know the the name of the shortstop fine but you you have to have at least heard of who's on first nobody's that much of a yokel well and especially like if you have like a weird comedy nerd kid who grew up to be on a sketch show (laughs) like Exactly. Like, it doesn't make any sense. You're telling me that until that moment at the end of this episode when he gives them the Abbott and Costello record, that's the first time he ever made his parents sit and listen to comedy stuff? I'm a weird nerd who's into stuff her parents aren't. I am telling you that is not how it works at all. My poor father knows more about show tunes than he probably ever wished to know. (laughs) Like, like... I remember years ago, like my my parents were were moving. I wasn't able to get down to uh, get down to where they were to clean out all the stuff that was in my old room. So they were doing it over the phone with me. And my mom pulled out like a paperback of a novelization of the 1989 Batman movie. So on the picture <laughs> on on the front cover, there's a picture of Michael Keaton as Batman and Jack Nicholson as the Joker. And my mom was like okay, well, this is called Batman. And I was like, okay, mom, you're going to have to give me a little more than that. <laughs> Get her title Batman. And and so she's tries 
and this is like a time before FaceTime. So um, she's just describing the cover to me over the phone. She's like, okay, well, there's there's Batman on the cover. And then next to him is, oh, oh it's that clown person. And I'm like, okay, mom, I don't demand that you know everything about comic books, but you have to at least know this much. Know this much. <laughs> if you don't, if you cannot name this character, I don't think you're my mother. <laughs> I think she was able to eventually get jo- the name Joker, but she was like, "Oh my, oh, oh okay." <laughs> I think it's called the Jester or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I mean, it was it was just a, a weird moment where it's just like things that are common second place knowledge to me. Yeah, um, you know, the real world doesn't care. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. I also liked how oh, at the end of that part, he gave uh, Tom gave his parents like the who's on first on vinyl. And he's yeah. like, Dad, I'm sure you still have the record player, right? And he, the yeah. dad's like, I, I don't care much for CDs. You know, so yes, I, do. I, was like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, come on. Everybody had CDs by no six. Come on. But the well, most important element of this storyline is it is yeah. a turn in the show going more and more batshit. And yeah. that is because we learned that Tom Jeter's brother is in the army in Afghanistan and mm. his father shouts right at him. <laughs> but your little brother is standing in the middle of Afghanistan. <laughs> Yeah. This also becomes a very important detail for this show that is ostensibly about sketch comedy. It is so (laughs) a wonderfully batshit insane moment because it's the most heavy-handed out of nowhere thing. It's like, okay, yeah, you can do a subplot about Tom being the unappreciated son and his brother's the rah-rah military guy. I mean, that's fine, but it's just, it's so heavy handed and it's so, it's so comical. (laughs) Unintended. Yeah. Um, The other note that I made about uh, this episode is that Jordan has just bought a show about the UN. And I was like, Hey, this fake NBC has a fake West wing. (laughs) (laughs) How brilliant the writing is, and how it's uh, this prestige drama, and HBO is bidding for it. And oh, and in the rap party, we also have Eli Wallach wandering around, and we find out that he's uh, a writer from the '50s who was a victim of the blacklist, who is blacklisted after he got like literally one sketch on Sid Caesar or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. They do this. I like again. They do this a lot on the show where they reference the days of old. They they always reference like. The television's past, television's history. Yeah. And honestly, I'm looking at this and I'm like, Sorkin, you, you should have just done a show about the blacklist in the 50s. Right. You know, That's that great be, material for him. Yeah, that would be so much more in your wheelhouse. Uh, not in the horrible way you did it in the uh, Lucy and Ricky movie, but no, uh, no. in some good, un, <laughs> you know, yeah. un-Lucy and Ricky way. Um, Maybe where, do it as a miniseries so you have some Nicole time Kidman to really dig like, into that. Yeah. Or actually Nicole use a figure who was actually, you know, involved in the blacklist, unlike yeah. uh, Lucille Ball, who was questioned once and then it never yeah. came up again. <laughs> ooh. Very, ooh, boy. That movie was bad, you guys. It's a bad uh, movie. <laughs> also, oh, okay, weird thing about. The the show within the show. Apparently, they never write for the host. Right. There's there's never talk about like, oh, here we we wrote this sketch for the for the host. They usually just sort of mention the host in passing. You never see the host 
hardly ever see the host wandering around. Like Lauren Graham has a cameo as yeah. the host. They reference Jessica Simpson hosting the show and they make cracks about her making a uh, misspeaking on air. Yes. And she had to fill her time. Which I, seems kind of cruel when she's not even there. It's yeah. mean. People are mean to Jessica Simpson. She also yeah. wrote a book that I read and she actually is like very thoughtful about her public persona and like mm-hmm. kind of great. And I'm like, oh, hey, we were maybe really mean to women and still are. Maybe yeah, we yeah. should not do that anymore. Like, and, and here they, they have a reference to like, oh yeah, she prayed for peace in the Midwest and when she obviously meant to say Mideast. And, yeah. and, and Dan Tripp literally goes, girl's nice to look at. Yeah, it's, oh, it's oh, boy. Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, boy. it's not good. Um, yeah, so Lauren Graham, I actually, I also, you brought it up before, but I brought up, like, Lauren Graham and Matthew Perry are actually, like, best friends, so it's, like, really cute. <laughs> I don't know I that. Them to do a show together. They, w- they would be incredible They would be together. great in something together, I agree. Yeah. But, yeah, no, they just, because they were, like, both auditioning at the same time in the mm-hmm. 90s and, you know. Became yeah, they both, they both like, took a while to break. Um, yeah, yeah. She didn't break really until Gilmore Girls, and he didn't break until Friends. Right. Um, so yeah, uh, but the, yeah, they do have so much chemistry together, and yeah, the Matt Harriet thing it just gets it gets so tedious as the show goes on. Yes. Yeah, at one point, yeah. you, like as you watch, you, you can definitely see. Oh, this is just Aaron Sorkin like reliving his relationship with Christian Chenoweth and just putting it on the screen for all of us to see. Yeah. And it, again, having just reread, reread her book, which came out, I think like right after they broke up for the last time, like half the book is about her being like, I don't know, we might get back together. And it's just like, um, because they, and it's all about that, about how she's like, we just bounced back and forth to each other for like seven years. So, and it, you know, these things happen. I mean, I can look. I can totally get why Aaron Sorkin would want to write about that, especially if that's such a it was such a longstanding on and off again relationship. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily follow that it's fascinating to everyone else. No, <laughs> it's not that interesting, and I'm very interested in both of them as people. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't care about this. I like yeah. both of your work very much. Do more of that, please. <laughs> like, well, and also, it's like when. The two actors you cast, they don't have much chemistry together. It yeah. just becomes terminable. Um, well, and they do kind of keep throwing women at Matt. <laughs> and, and, like, none of it really works. Like, oh, yeah, with him and Jeannie? Uh, yes, him and Jeannie. Yeah. And then, like, later there's, like, a lawyer because the show's being sued for sexual harassment, which probably rightfully because, like, everyone is, like, very sexist and terrible to Jordan. Um, and, mm. um, but, like... Um, and it like and like there's like clearly something going on there, but then they knew they were getting canceled, so they had to wrap up the Matt and Harriet thing like way too early, and with them not having great chemistry, it's just it's weird, it's weird stuff. Weird. There, there's also a two-parter uh, in this first chunk of episodes called Nevada Day. Ah, uh, Nevada Day. <laughs> all about Tom Jeter gets arrested in New York, and then. They find, or I'm sorry, in Los Angeles, and then they find yeah. out he has an outstanding warrant in Nevada for failure to appear after a speeding ticket. And so he's extradited to Nevada and being held there, and it's it's a holiday Nevada day, so none of the municipal 
workers are on duty. Right. So they have to, uh, so they have bring to call. In, yeah. Yeah. So they have to call in a judge off his vacation. Then they call in uh, a judge who comes in. That judge played by the the great John Goodman, who comes yeah, in. who actually won an Emmy for that uh, two parter. Oh, nice. Oh God, that horrible speech at the end of that about the like, tell your friends that we're not all morons out here and bumfuck whatever. Yeah. <laughs> won an Emmy. Rump Nevada, which Rump everybody. Nevada. Like, That's a funny name. That's a funny, funny name. name. Well, less so when you keep saying it's a funny name. <laughs> uh, yeah, that yeah, was interesting. So, and like the ticking clock is this is happening on a show day, so they have to try and get uh, uh, Tom back to do the show. And they right. found the joint in his pocket because he was wearing Simon's jacket. And uh, uh, and don't forget the Macau deal. <laughs> uh, oh, oh yeah, and uh, yeah, there's this whole subplot about. Yeah, about Ed Asner wants to build. He's doing this big business deal in Macau. I don't. I don't really get why I'm supposed to care about it. I guess it's just something so that Jack Rudolph has stuff to do. Yeah, and there's like the Weird. the Chinese half of the deal has a daughter who's studying in America and mm-hmm. has a big crush on Tom, which again. Yeah rings true to me, a weird teenager who was who had a big crush on Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. Um, I was like, well, that's that feels true. <laughs> she wants to give up playing the viola to go into comedy because she has such a huge crush on Tom Jeter. They they bring her back and they, they get into this more. Yeah, they get and, it into a caper. Um, yeah. And then and then the then they bring in Jordan's pregnancy and it's yeah. And and Danny's yeah, basically stalking her. Yep. In in a creepy way, and it's even creepy. It was even creepy in in two thousand six. Yes. Um, so. And it's only gotten creepier. <laughs> and he literally well, it, says, "I'm coming for you, Jordan." You, Jordan. Oh, I'm coming for you, Jordan's really bad, and it's also like everyone keeps telling Danny that he's not doing anything wrong, like that this is lovely and romantic, and, and she's oh. she tells him multiple times to. Up. <laughs> and he's he's inundating her with phone calls and he's he's having friends like write letters of recommendation for him <laughs> oh geez yeah it's weird People, like, nevada day her. oh gosh nevada day uh, oh. yeah yeah nevada yeah. day i think nevada day is when the show starts to, i mean because i didn't see any episode i didn't rewatch any episode after nevada day but yeah this is when like, i yeah. started to see all right, it seems like the wheels are falling off the trolley here a little bit just because it's, yeah. again, it's not really focusing on the show within the show anymore. It's kind of all about this sort of extraneous outside stuff. And, I mean, the chemistry, the actors are good. I don't know about the chemistry between the actors. But, yeah, yeah this is where I th- I think Nevada Day is where things start to uh, go awry. If I'm well, not, and yeah. the thing that Nevada Day reminds me of the most is there's a, there's a West Wing two-parter uh, in either season three or four called 24 Hours in America, right, where, right, uh, right. where Toby and Josh, um, yeah. but Bradley Whitford and Richard Schiff's characters get stranded at a campaign event and have to like find their way back to Washington on their own. And they yeah. have sort of the uh, coastal elites realize that the yokels aren't idiots you know, right. experience. And it makes sense for them. They're White House staffers. <laughs> like, and, um, <laughs> And it's also like well written and like, but it like this episode, I'm like, he's trying to do that again. 
Yeah. But again, these are these are comedians. <laughs> They're not and, and the the big revolution resolution no. in the episode is we find out that Tom was speeding. He was going like 120 miles an hour because he was trying to get his little brother back to his unit in time to ship out again. Because he's like shipped out to Afghanistan three times. He's on his third tour. And and he did and but Tom is just so noble he didn't want to say anything. He didn't want to use his brother's service to get out of the ticket. And it's it's just it's just this whole weird thing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's bizarre. And like he Tom borrowed Simon's jacket because he was dressed as Jesus for a sketch that sounds insufferable and everyone thinks is insufferable except for Matt. <laughs> Which that's a pretty good that everyone's like, no, this is stupid. We shouldn't do it. And Matt's like, no, it will go on the air. And then like, it's like, no, why? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's Sorkin's sort of, uh, I guess, his biggest Achilles heel. Like, he has these things that he wants to say that he wants to get across. But like on this show, anyway, yeah. it, it feels like it doesn't really serve the the whole the show or the whole story of the show. Like, he wants to say, hey, guys, you know, the, it seems like he has like a little bit of an axe to grind with you know, Hollywood, which he works in, and like how maybe the liberals look down on the people in the red states where he wants to say, hey, people in red states and you know, these flyover states aren't idiots. And like, hey, right. you know, say he wants to say whatever he wants to say about, you know, people working or people but who are in... he keeps making them idiots. That's the thing. Yeah, that's <laughs> like... like the most stereotypical... <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I like when he he makes a point about Hollywood because he obviously knows how Hollywood works. Yeah. Where you know Matt Matt Perry's character says like, "Hey, I've never met like three people who agree on anything in Hollywood." Or when when Jack Rudolph uh, says like, "Hey, you know, everybody says Hollywood's liberal, but we're all owned by huge corporations, and and right. they just care about what can make them a profit." And I'm thinking like, those are wonderful, excellent points to make, and you're talking about something you know about. Yeah, and, I mean, it if he were if he wanted to make something that was about like the weird tension between art and commerce, making a show about television is the right way to do that. Yeah, but making it a sketch show is strange. Like. <laughs> Mm. When you can't even spend any behind the scenes time at an SNL type show. Like, like, I mean, Tina Fey, she had years of experience to draw on when doing 30 Rock. Right. She was like, and the original concept for 30 Rock, from what I understand, was she was originally, it was going to be behind the scenes of a news show or something. Right. And, yeah. And then I think Lauren was like, this is, you don't know anything about this. Do you make it a comedy show? Like, yeah. Right. Well, you know. You what a good note. Like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> And like if if Aaron Sorkin wanted to write a show about a genius writer who is doing a West Wing like show about the United Nations or something, I think that probably would have been a much better show. Right. Or even, yeah. Even if he was doing something about the blacklist or about the production of the Daily Show. And but his ideas about Saturday Night Live just seem just weirdly outdated or just wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's very odd. It's certainly strange that like he didn't Again, I, I guess it's because the SNL people were all kind of rank and file behind Tina, which is kind of lovely. Yeah. But also it's like no one wanted to talk to him. Like he yeah. couldn't get like, I don't know, anyone? <laughs> it's it's weird. It's funky. I, I found there was a I found a New Yorker article where they were talking about this. And this was like so early in the process that it was before I think either show premiered. Um, and 30 Rock was still called Untitled Tina Fey Project. 
Um, but Tina Fey has an incredible quote. She said, and because like Studio 60 was the clear favorite of right. these two. Everybody expected 30 Rock to basically die a quick death. And Tina Fey, because they're on the, the same network, Tina Fey has this incredible quote. She says, we'll probably end up doing a terrible crossover where the Matthew Perry character on the drama rapes my character on the comedy, and then the Law & Order team solves the crime. <laughs> Jesus. That's great. And that Holy actually God. sounds like something that would happen in the Jenna Maroney movie. The rural juror. The rural juror. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that it's John Goodman in Nevada Day, that it, um, oh, right. So, yeah, so Simon lent Tom his jacket and there was a joint in the jacket and right. uh, marijuana use is a felony in Nevada. So, like, that's right. like a whole thing. And Simon's like, it's my joint. And everyone's like, shut up, Simon. You have nothing to do with this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that whole thing started because he punched some guys who were calling Harriet a homophobe. and. Yeah, they say the paper only printed half her quote, and yeah. this really has next to nothing to do with producing. No, a it's just something for Matt and Harriet to fight about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it weird. like it just is so weird and strange, and I don't know. I love I loved revisiting this show to just be reminded of how it made no sense at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean. Crazy, and it just gets crazier by the end. I, I think it. I think it was a really unfortunate choice to write uh, Amanda Pete's real life pregnancy into the show. I think they I probably because then he's like matching her up with Danny romantically, and that's weird. And then, like the last few episodes of the show, there's all this complications with the pregnancy. They're doing a weird hostage thing with with Tom's, with Tom's brother. brother. And yeah. And it's and it it's like he's tr he just decides I want to write the West Wing again and I'm just going to make this show into the West Wing. Right, and there's all these flashbacks to them leaving the show the first yeah. time, which feels very much like the Aaron Sorkin's axe grinding theater. Like he was like, "This is what happened. This is why I left West Wing. They were trying to yeah. control me, and I wouldn't let them." And it's like, okay. and then Tommy left with me. And it's like, okay, yeah. man. And there's there's also like a weird thing I, I think this was in like the third episode maybe in the focus group episode where danny is like justifying why his cocaine addiction is better than than jordan having a dui yeah where yeah. he's like hey if i go on a bender with cocaine i'm only hurting myself if you're on a if you're driving right, you might kill someone <laughs> all these other people and i'm like really really you're yeah. that's the line you're drawing in the sand yeah, because nobody ever gets behind the wheel after doing cocaine. Oh, it's so weird. Nope. Oh, so this weird. show. <laughs> it's, and it's just it's, like, I mean, we didn't even get to the Yeah, and Sorry? that's weird. We didn't even get to the part where uh, Mark McKinney, we didn't get to the part where even uh, Mark McKinney, the Kids in the Hall, and SNL makes an appearance yes. in the show. Yeah. Well, like later in the. Yeah, uh, he's. Um... He's a writer oh, whose whole family died, so they're doing him a yeah. favor by giving him something to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, well, it's it's after like all the rest of the staff quits. Yeah. Um, oh, and by, yeah, by the way, the two main writers who quit, they're uh, thinly veiled stand-ins for people that Aaron Sorkin had a, a, a beef with on the West Wing. Right. And like one of them's played by 
Evan Handler, who like to me, like he just like he's supposed to be like this scumbag in this, and I'm like he just like projects decency like every time he speaks. Like this is not a man who like comes off as slimy by any stretch. Why did you cast him? Like and, um, I I actually really liked Evan Handler in this because yeah, he did give the character some integrity. He's supposed to be this hack writer who's just not funny. But yeah. <laughs> he has a legitimate beef with Matt. Matt is treating him horribly. <laughs> like I'm, I'm just like watching it, and I'm like, "That's right. Like you're Charlotte's wonderful husband from Sex and the City. I love you. Like, and, um, um, you're you're so good, and like you're such a stand-up guy. Like what? <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's R- Rick. Ricky Tahoe, who yeah. is apparently loosely based on Rick Cleveland, okay. who, who co-wrote an episode of The West Wing with that apparently Evan Aaron Sorkin rewrote very heavily, and that episode of The West Wing won an Emmy, and Aaron Sorkin did all the talking at the Emmys. Oh, and this, who, who <laughs> this and this episode? It was uh, the the episode of The West Wing where it was about like the dead uh, veteran. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, what a great episode. It was a really personal, uh, it came out of a really personal thing in Rick Cleveland's life. And he didn't get to say a freaking word at the Emmys. And and Sorkin just kind of escorted him off after he spoke. (laughs) And they they got into like a sort of a war with words at uh, Television Without Pity or one of those early 2000s things. And also, oh, Sorkin hates the internet, you guys. Uh, (laughs) You don't say. He... He hates the internet for no real reason. Just but oh, he, he really, really hates the internet, and it. Um, he used to apparently like create fake screen names and yell at people on television without pity. Like, yeah. <laughs> but then he wrote the Social Network, which is like a love letter to the internet. <laughs> like, well, I mean, in a dark it way. Because I mean. At the end of the social network, like Mark Zuckerberg is all alone and he's he's just totally isolated uh, because of of this thing that he's invented. Um, And also just because he's a shit person in the world of the movie. And, you know, maybe in real life. I don't know. Never met the man. Um, But, yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, and he has he has characters who shouldn't hate the Internet hating the Internet just because they're being written by Aaron Sorkin. It's a weird thing. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. uh, strange. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's the thing about Sork. You you get. I mean, he is a very talented writer, and he is he can write some amazing dialogue. But you also you also just know he's he's a bit full of himself sometimes. Like he's very yeah. Uh, yeah. He's, I think um, a big thing that hurts this show is that he television had changed, and like yeah. you couldn't create the sort of episodic thing that he was really good at, sort of uh, digging deep into. To characters with yeah. and like it had to be like overarching plot lines which is not his strength like at all yeah so it you know yeah it's a, it's a weird show and it just gets weirder as it goes on <laughs> it really it, does. yeah it's just it's amazing how much he lost the plot um it and yeah it's um 
Yeah, it just gets lost. And I guess, like, maybe uh, the the ratings probably reflected that as well. Like, uh, I mean, I remember yeah. watching it just because I saw it promoted everywhere in the beginning. But then after a while, I think, like I said, like around the Nevada Day episode, I was like, all right, this is the show's losing me. And I just kind of backed away. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of America probably had the same sentiment. The, the show, yeah. in one of the pieces I looked up about it, the show had lost a third of its audience by the third episode. Damn. Um, so it, it dropped off pretty quickly. And the only reason I think it got a full season was they were guaranteed to get a full season because the, the, the pilot was so strong, it started a bidding war. And he was able to guarantee a full season. Like if if they didn't air all the episodes, they would have had to pay some exorbitant sum so it oh was easier. God. So they had to burn, burn them off. Yeah. And oh. and that is exactly what they did with the last few episodes. Yeah. I remember um, they all aired in like one night or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think they aired at least two or three in, in a single yeah. night. Uh, I, I'd have to double check the air dates, but. Wow. All Interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh it's a oh, weird wait, show no. and crazy. Yeah, and... I'm seeing the air dates. They, they didn't. They didn't burn off multiple ones. But oh, okay. the last, the last four episodes, they aired in June. So, okay. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and that that makes sense. That that's yeah. probably why they uh, you can't find a show anywhere. I mean, it is streaming, like, yeah. but you have to pay for it. But as far right. as like, streaming on like a, you know, on like a streaming service for free, no. Uh, and like, I, right. I, I even mentioned to like, uh, my wife that we were doing this episode about the show and she was like, oh yeah, I kind of remember. It seems like it just, like everybody just forgot about it. It's, it's so it's, bizarre. It's falling down the memory hole, but there, there is a weird sort of legacy to the show is that it still has a Twitter presence, oddly enough, not by anybody connected with the show, but, uh, a comedy writer, uh, Seth Reese, who was the uh, head writer for The Onion, mm -hmm. uh, he started up a Twitter account for Matt Albee. And it's it's still up. It's Matt Albee 60. And Jake, Jake Fogelness started a Twitter account for Danny Tripp. And it's like Danny Tripp 60. <laughs> and they, they started up Twitter accounts for like every character on the show. Um, yeah. The Matt Albee one is the only one that's still going at all. Sure. Um, I remember following the, them. And then, yeah. you know, did a purge of my follows and, and stopped following yeah. them for a while. But it, yeah, it was very I, funny I, when it was yeah, following them on. Uh, it looks like the Matt Albee one is the only one that is still active at all. And he'll, he'll tweet like once every few months or something. Right. But apparently he also did an, a whole fake oral history of the show on <laughs> um, there was, and it doesn't seem to be up online anymore. I was searching desperately for it this morning, but he, he wrote a fake Amazon page with a fake Studio 60 oral history. Um, and he wrote a full chapter called like Matt and Danny <laughs> that is basically telling the, the story of the pilot from their point of view. <laughs> wow. It sounds hilarious and I desperately want to read it, but it doesn't, it, it was on sketchcomedyisimportant.com and that is no longer active. Uh, but I desperately want to see it. I, I looked on the Wayback Machine. It's not around, but oh, okay. that is a shame. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> if you can find anything, listeners, let us know. Uh, we also put out, yeah. uh, put the word out on Twitter that we were doing uh, this uh, Studio 60. And uh, we heard mm -hmm. from our followers, uh, Manette Marathi, friend of the podcast, saying, Scrolling yeah. through the Wikipedia for the show, it seemed as though Sorkin was trying to use 80s SNL people 
like Michael O'Donoghue and Victoria Jackson as archetypes without actually including what their styles of comedy were. Overall, Sorkin seemed to have been living in a different era of SNL when creating this. That obviously doesn't fit what the show was then. And yeah, like yeah. It, it, a lot of the sketches on the show feel kind of dated. I feel like from like 70s era SNL or even like mm-hmm. Smothers Brothers, maybe. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's, that's, that was, my, that was like my, one of my main issues with this uh, show. I do wonder if instead of trying to do it as like a modern SNL, if he had done like a 60s variety show as his like, like mm-hmm. that would have been great, you know, like it or yeah. could have been. Or at least more interesting and more in his wheelhouse and more like yeah yeah exactly it's so weird <laughs> it's yeah it it's so weird um, uh, I feel like we keep repeating that but there's just no other word for this show it's, it's a weird show <laughs> it's a weird show you guys um, I mean it's interesting to see it's it's always an interesting watch even. I mean, there there are some moments that are wonderful, and then there are some moments where it's just like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. As I say, it does work in some spots, but overall, yeah. it's uh, not not yeah. not the not his finest work. But uh, just to backtrack a little bit on the the fake oral history, apparently, uh, Seth Rice he established that Harper Lee was a writer for Studio Sixty. <laughs> Jason Alexander was a cast member at one point. I well, mean, so they do show an episode that Jason Alexander hosted, so that at least makes a little bit of sense. There you it's, go. It would yeah. make sense as to why Jason Alexander would be at all relevant enough to host a television show. And <laughs> if in this alternate world he was it's, a former cast member, that makes more sense. So, so many of the hosts that cameo on the show are, are just people who are under a contract to NBC, and they, I think they're just doing a favor for the network. Right. It's that. So, Jenna Fisher's in one. And then, like I said, there's a whole episode about Alice and Janney's episode, and I'm like, that's her doing Aaron a favor, which is nice. Right. <laughs> like, right. And with Huffman, who pops up in a cameo in the first episode, it's... Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, Oh, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> what can you do if I and throw up your hands? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, oh my goodness. And uh, yeah, that's our episode, guys. Studio 60 on Sunset Strip. It's, uh, it's a bizarre, bizarre show that I guess has a cult following now. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. oh boy, it's, 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 it's a head scratcher. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely weird. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's our episode. Uh, Rini, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank for... you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate uh, it. Yeah, is there anything you want to plug, promote, uh, you know, social media handles? Uh, please, the floor is yeah, yours. Yeah. Um, so my uh, my Twitter is at Fangirl Dilemma. Um, and then uh, that's the name of my blog is the Fangirl's Dilemma. It's dot wordpress.com because I. Um, waited three weeks too long to renew my domain and so that's something i need to do (laughs) and um and then i also have a uh, instagram that's uh, at the fangirls dilemma um i also have a a strange side fiction writing project that i've been uh working on for five years called the marina chronicle Mm -hmm. where i take the uh, aesthetics of epic fantasy and apply the tropes of uh, 90s and 2000s teen dramas (laughs) to I'm listening. And I've been, uh, it's called the Marina Chronicle. It's very fun. Uh, so it's basically uh, my uh, elevator pitches. Uh, what if One Tree Hill took place in Westeros? Um, wow. And uh, 
It's been going, I've been writing it for five years. Uh, this week, actually, on Wednesday is the fifth anniversary. So uh, my uh, social media channels are going to be kind of flooded with content from that to uh, celebrate that milestone um, okay. <laughs> coming up. Um, uh, yeah, so there's that. Yeah, and my blog, The Fangirl's Dilemma. Right now I'm doing a uh, 104 new-to-me movies. Um, I've been watching recently a lot of um, show business exposés and melodramas because mm. I've been doing a lot of the work of Bob Fosse, and that's kind of his whole vibe. So I've been watching other movies that fit in that vibe. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, so it's very cool, very, very fun stuff. Right, I would appreciate a follow or even just a, you know, a, a click by the blog so that I can get my hits up. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, go, go check her out. She's doing some cool stuff. Yeah. Fantastic. So, uh, and, uh, as dilemma or the fangirls dilemma, uh, dot wordpress.com. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic. And, uh, yeah, as always, you can follow this podcast, uh, at SNL nerd show on Twitter. And, uh, you know, you can, you can hit us up at our uh, Patreon non-productive.com slash SNL nerds. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Darren Credible. That's D-A-R-I-N Credible. And you can follow me uh, at Trumbull Comic. That's T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L and the word comic. And uh, we'll be back next week with something else. Uh, we haven't decided exactly yet what. So yeah, we're going to figure that out and then we'll let you know. That's right. So yeah, just uh, just follow us over on the Twitter sphere at uh, SNL Nerd Show and uh, We'll let you know. We will. We will. So, so we'll be back next week with some other thing. But until then, nerd out. out. <laughs> 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 <Okay>. <laughs>This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablaoui. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.